I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is presented by Mountain Tough and Yeti. I partnered with Mountain Tough because a lot of the tactics and hunt styles I talk about in this podcast require you to be in the best physical shape you can. Their app is designed for hunters to get you ready for the backcountry or any hunt you have planned this fall. Yeti's been a longtime supporter of mine, and they make some of the toughest products out there that are built to last and they're built for the wild. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Live Wild podcast. This week I'm really excited because we've got our live Q&A. We're doing this mid-season. I've just been out guiding and elk hunting all week and just took a few hours here in the middle of the day between glassing and scouting and, and being out hunting to answer a few hunting questions. So I'm sure we'll get some kind of in the moment hunting questions this week. I'm really excited because today we've got two prizes. I really like doing these uh, call-in shows. It's fun to be able to give some stuff away. We've got some awesome gators from Stone Glacier. And because we're going to be moving into the late pack boots, those are made here in Montana. I'm really excited to be able to give someone a pair of those boots. When the temperatures drop, those boots are awesome. When the snow falls, the Stone Glacier gators are pretty incredible. So I'm really looking forward to, to jumping into some calls here. Uh, and let's, uh, let's dive into our first call. If this is your first time calling, um, or first time listening, and you, you finally got in, uh, congratulations. I'm excited to talk to you. The way we like to do it is just give me your name, where you're from, and then we'll just dive into the question. So I'm going to jump on our first caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, this is Brad. Hey, Brad. How's it going? Good, man. Um, I'm from Castle Rock, Colorado. Uh, love your shows. Um, I'm actually in the process of Cutting up my cow elk that I got a couple days ago from Wyoming. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, my question is, um, I took the wife out muzzleloader hunting in Colorado this year. Um, hunted really close to private land. Shot the, shot the elk on BLM land. Jumped over to private. Have you had, ever had any issues with dealing with private landowners? And how close do you hunt to private land? That's a really good question. Um, you know, so I have had instances where we've shot elk and it's run on to private. Um, it's an interesting thing because, you know, you, well, where we hunt in Montana mostly or, or a lot of other places, you have to get permission before entering the private land. Um, so what we do is we call the landowner and we say, Hey, can we have permission to go in here and retrieve an, an elk or deer or whatever that, that's gone on to here? Unfortunately, that's just the scenario that we're facing. Uh, there was a couple times, well, one time where they were like, yep, you're allowed to go in, but you cannot bring a gun, which, you know, in some ways I understand there's, they probably get a lot of people like shooting something in the wrong spot. You know, we could prove, Hey, here's blood coming over the fence. We actually had video, um, you know, and, and here's where it went. Uh, that we went in there. Unfortunately, that bull wasn't down and we had to finish it with a knife. It's kind of a dangerous situation, but, um, you know, that, that did happen. Now, I've never had a landowner say no, um, but it, it is something to consider when you are uh, out hunting, right? Um, one of the things that I like to think about is, you know, I, I generally try to put myself in a position where 
I don't have to think about that. There are times where, you know, the elk or deer or whatever are moving those, they're, they're really close to those private boundaries. And sometimes they might just jump over for a little bit or be crossing in this one spot. Um, I personally don't like to have to deal with that. Um, it's just like anything. I, I like to think of knowing the recovery. So if I'm in a new place, I don't know the landowner. I don't know how to contact them. I don't even mess with it, to be honest. Um, if I, if I have contacts, I, I think that I'll be able to reach the landowner or whatever. And I, and I know that they would allow us to go on there and retrieve the animal. Then I'm fine with it. And I think about it in the same way that I think about when I'm mountain goat hunting or tar hunting or even like mule deer hunting in rough country. Wherever I shoot that animal, I need to be able to recover it, right? Now, of course, you expect for a good shot and it to drop and, and whatever, but things go wrong, things can go bad, um, and anything can happen. So, you know, I kind of see like private land is that recovery zone like I would with a mountain goat. If it's on a place where if I shoot it, it's going to fall and I can't recover it, I don't shoot it. If it's somewhere where I know that it won't do that, then it, then it doesn't matter. And I actually play it like that a lot more often. Um, because I, I just want to make sure that no matter what, I can recover the animal. I don't have to deal with all that process and pain in the ass of what if it does jump the fence. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was her first bull elk. I mean, she's hunted cows quite a bit, and it's her first bull. And it kind of put a damper on, you know, the trophy aspect of it. But uh, we were able to use Onyx and find the landowner and get do a quick Google search on get the, get the number. But it's one of those things that's, I would, I'm going to try to avoid it as much as possible, but it just happened to be that's where the elk were bugling, and that's, I mean, she put a great shot on it right through the heart, but it, it went 20 yards, but it just jumped the fence in the in the last 10. So just one of those that um, is a great hunt, but uh, just didn't know how close and how often you, you dealt with private land. So I appreciate all the stuff that you've done for hunting, and uh, keep it up, man. Love the stuff. Awesome. Thanks, and congratulations on your guys' success this season. That's really cool. Awesome. I appreciate it, man. Have a good one. Thanks. Thanks, too. All right. We're going to go to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Who am I talking to? Hey, Remy. Long-time listener, first-time caller. This is uh, Ed in Indianapolis. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. How's it going, Ed? Not bad. Not bad at all. Hey, um, this actually piggybacks perfectly off that uh, uh, first caller. I'm hunting uh, urban deer reduction zone in Indianapolis, um, where my saddle typically hangs within, you know, a hundred yards of I-465, which is the big loop around Indianapolis. And it, it's a, only about 1.7 acres of woods, which, you know, sounds uh, outrageous to even try to hunt, but it abuts this, oh, about 220 acre, just awesome, uh, section of, uh, swampy and, and hilly type country to the back and then there's neighbor parcels on each side obviously so kind of going with the uh the theme of the first question I any input i know it's not your typical forte but any input on how i should handle you know a potential recovery in a situation like that i, I know i can get access to the the large parcel you know worst case scenario is you know an arrow deer running into a, a neighbor's flower bed or something yeah, I mean, in those scenarios, I, I kind of, you know, you, you've got to be super careful on what you do, how you proceed, and kind of know a little bit about what's around you in some ways, not necessarily like the property around you, but the people around you, you know. Um, I know that like in, in some of those areas, there's, you know, or, I mean, 
it happens everywhere, right? Like that's a lot of hunters' experiences. They're, you're hunting in areas where the deer populations are crazy high. They've opened up these seasons, and and they do it for a reason. Um, and and we as hunters know that. Um, so I think that one of the things too is maybe just kind of like gauging the temperature of the, the people around um, in some ways. You know, like I think you, just being a good person, introducing yourself, and like saying like this is what I'm doing. You know, I, you know, I, I'm not whatever, just, um, it, it can go a long ways because if there's somebody that doesn't really like hunting and the first time they hear about it is like somebody's hunting back there or whatever is there's a dead deer in the front yard and you got to recover or whatever. Um, you know, I think like if you just kind of educate people and, and really get a, a gauge of, okay, what, what are these people doing? Um, you know, I like to think of it this way because I've, I've actually hunted in very similar places and areas and whatever. And when I go into that, I think, man, I'm like an ambassador for hunting and, and continuing this hunt on, you know, so how we act and in the recovery process and, and what happens um, can go a long way, you know, and if there's a, a, a certain place where it's like, Hey, they're facing toward this house where, man, I know that they aren't like those people were not very receptive to what I was doing. doesn't mean that you can't hunt there, but it just means like be real cognizant of, you know, the kind of shots you're taking, where the animal's at and where it's, it, it might go. Um, oh, if that makes a- sense. You know, absolutely. Just, yeah. Cause I, I mean, like it's definitely uh, a lot of hunters experience where you, it's not like you, you aren't going to hunt there or can't hunt there, but just having a little bit, like I talked to the last caller, just having that little bit of pre-knowledge, it, it makes you game plan a little bit better on like the actions you can take. And same thing, you got to know that you can recover it. I don't know the rules out there, you know, everywhere is different. Some places, I've heard, you know, you can follow recover, you can recover your animal on private property. A lot of places out west, that's not the case. It doesn't matter what goes on. You cannot enter private property without permission. So, um, you know, it just depends where you're at and what the rules are. Um, but also just, you know, remember when you're out there, hey, uh, you know, I'm, I might be doing something that not that we have to necessarily cater toward non-hunters, but we do have to be cognizant of those people, because they're the ones that kind of are going to make the voting decision when it comes time to renew those seasons and, and keep you know, hunters in the field. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I don't plan on taking anything other than, you know, it's going to be a 20 yard perfect shot and uh, yep. which I know they'll have uh, can still go wrong, but just from the trail cam footage and the convenience, I mean, there are just some absolute hogs running through this uh, drainage right in urban Indiana. And it's, it's, it's awesome. So it's, it's tough to resist. But uh, yeah. yeah, I, I got to explain cool. it well. And that, that's a good idea to, if my brother's land, that's a good idea to introduce myself to some of the neighbors. But appreciate it, Remy. Yep. Have a good one. Good luck, man. Keep me posted. It sounds like a, a cool opportunity. So uh, best of luck to you. You're the man. Thanks, Remy. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye. All right. I'm going to jump into our next caller here. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Remy. How's it going? Yeah, pretty good. Good. Hey, my name is Jared. I am in Utah, and I am actually sitting on the side of the road with my last little bit of service, heading up for my last chance on my deer hunt. Um, Heck yeah! It was all kind of it was perfect timing. I was listening to today's podcast on the drive up, and you were like 1 p.m. PST, and I was like, "That's about when I'll get there to air down my tires." So it, it worked out pretty perfectly. I'm pretty uh, pretty stoked to be able to ask you, but this is my first time ever hunting deer. Um, we're in. Uh, kind of northern utah and we've got a lot of we're up in like the mountains and uh we were out here last weekend and opening day we got like just totally pounded on with snow and it got really cold 
And so last Saturday was opening day. We got a bunch of snow and we saw Saturday night and like Sunday afternoon, a ton of people were finding success just like from the road. And so we were kind of feeling discouraged that we'd been hiking all these miles, not seeing anything. And then all these people are dropping deer just off the side of the road. And uh, I'm just kind of, my biggest question I think is uh, on Monday, we were realizing like with the cold, it seemed like they weren't really moving around early morning when we were out there, but we saw them like, we saw a few off in the distance, but it was right as we had to get leaving and getting packing up. So we couldn't really chase them, but it looked like they might be chasing like these South facing slopes to get into the sun. And so I just kind of wanted your experience, your tip on, on mule deer as it's gotten cold all of a sudden, what, what kind of behavior should we expect in the, in the morning and in the evening? Like, I just don't really know how to pattern them. Yeah, that's a really good question. And one of the things, I mean, I love when, especially in that October season, like, you know, a couple of weeks ago when we we got that similar thing around us and it's, and it's a game changer. It can be the difference between like a really good hunt and a, a fairly tough hunt. Um, what happens is, you know, until they start to run, now what you're going to do, I mean, things have, things with mule deer change very fast. Like what what's happening before the rut is they're kind of in these, like the mature bucks are in these holes kind of by themselves and they're just really waiting for the rut to kick off. And then a light switch goes off and they start cruising. And then, you know, and then the does start to catch up and then it starts to become the rut. And when that light switch kicks off, things really change. But when you get that early snow, uh, what can happen is the deer that have been in these little holes now need to go and like, seek other things, which could be maybe a new food source. It could be maybe going to the south facing slopes where that snow is burning off. Um, and, and what it does as well is it starts to congregate the does into pockets. So those areas where, okay, especially when it gets bitter cold, that's the best. If it snows, clears up and the temperatures just plummet, those does start moving around more, but they also start congregating. And what that's doing is it's just, you know, minimizing the place that it's like, putting deer in one place, which is attracting other deer. You create these deer magnets. Now we've got those cruising bucks starting to hit where those does are. And my guess is, is what had happened was where you went for the bucks um, up higher or whatever, um, you know, you, it was probably pretty good than the snow hit. And then now the pockets where all these deer are starting to congregate are probably maybe a lot of those country near the roads where it's been opened up, you know, sometimes it's the, I don't know what the country looks like there, but I mean, sometimes it's like timbered country and where you've got roads, you've got logging, you've got clear cuts, you've got other things. Sometimes you just, you know, different kinds of country where you can have a road tends to be where some of those doe pockets or does were hanging out. And then as they start to congregate into like the good suitable habitat, a lot of the immature bucks that are already with those does are now visible. They're out they're in those pockets and the dudes that are ripping around are finding the success because they're, they're being mobile, they're covering country and they're just going to kind of intersect deer. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's, that's not to discourage you like, oh, I was doing the wrong thing because what's going to start happening now is now you're going to start to get those mature bucks that are going to be cruising. But I would definitely pay attention to the places where um, deer are congregating. And then those travel corridors, those, those like ridges and other places where it's like, hey, we're moving from that higher country into this rutting stage elevation. And then just, you know, depending on the type of country, being mobile, covering country, glassing a lot, looking for those cruising gear. I think that you can find a lot of success doing that. Okay. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. We, uh, I've got, and I can hunt 
tonight for the evening and tomorrow for the morning. So my plan is just to go hard for this last, you know, 12 hours of hunting I've got and try to find something. But uh, yeah, I appreciate that. It kind of re-sparks the, feels worth it to get out and get deeper in there and get off the roads because that was a little yeah. uh, surprising. <laughs> yeah, so you know, ahead. one of the things that I, if, if it was my tag, I would start to look for those like, look for those pockets back there where it's got the like brushy brows, you know, because that's, that's a really uh, good food source for mature like mule deer. Um, if you can get like a high mountain pocket where it, it's, a, it's whatever kind of country it is. And maybe you've got that sage pocket in there. Um, that's that kind of like weatherproof food. That's the stuff that they eat late season is the stuff that they're going to eat to bulk up. And you can find those little pockets of that kind of browse. Uh, that's when you're where you're gonna really start turning up the the better buck. Sweet. Well, thanks. I appreciate the help, Remy. Yep. Best of luck. Keep me posted, man. I hope to see a uh, uh, a success photo come back here tomorrow. <laughs> me too, man. <laughs> yep. Best of luck. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. All right. Our next caller looks like is it Tyler? Yeah, Tyler from Manitoba. Hey, how's it going, Tyler? How you doing? It's yeah, great. pretty good. I uh, just, I just want to say, man, you're an absolute legend. It's a, <laughs> an honor to talk to you. You're a, as an outdoorsman and hunter. It's just, uh, yeah, really cool to follow along with all your journeys and adventures. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> so thanks. here in Manitoba, we just had a mule deer season open up. Uh, first one in, oh, I don't know, maybe ever. As far as I can remember, it's the first one ever. Um, wow. And unfortunately, that's bringing in some CWD, it looks like. So we're going to have to figure out what that all looks like. But uh, in the meantime, we can get tagged for them and go out and try and find some. There's they're few and far in between at the moment. But uh, yeah, so my question uh, is, is partly that. Um, partly mealies, partly whitetail. I was listening to an old Cut in the Distance episode today on whitetails, and and a lot of your stuff is definitely uh, big country hunting. And so I was just wondering, uh, what are your best tips for a little more flatland hunting for deer, uh, for muleys and for whitetails? Uh, and I, I guess there's probably a few differences between the two, but uh, yeah, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it depends on the type of country. A lot of the the more flatland hunting for whitetails and mule deer that I've done, you know, they're the nice thing about flatland is it's, it's prime for agriculture, right? And that ag really draws in the deer. Um, you know, they, they get real dependent on those like artificial or grown food sources. Um, obviously like you, you drive around in the fields, there's whatever they've got, alfalfa, corn, whatever, whatever you, whatever you've got in that kind of country, right? Is where you're hunting more like, is it, is it agricultural or is it a little bit of like, more that just kind of plateau prairie country uh well particularly the areas i'm hunting there's actually a lot of uh almost almost swamp uh like a lot of pine evergreen type trees and willows and then intermixed with like a little bit of egg on the edges and stuff i mean most of the egg is all uh private land and so more of the public land is, is actually pretty thick uh small growth no big timber really yep yeah, you know, I mean, in those in those scenarios, like we we actually do, and it, it kind of ties in with a lot of the other callers today. But we do find those places where it's like, hey, we've got private land and public land kind of interspersed. Um, actually, yesterday when I was yeah. guiding, uh, the clients had tagged out on elk, and they had whitetail tags, 
And it was like, you know, we the, we could not turn up the bucks in the bigger country. So we, we kind of just like switched gears and gravitated toward, all right, we're going to catch the deer that are moving toward that agriculture and, and like moving toward it in the evening and off it in the morning um, and finding those places like, okay, here's some public land where it's got good travel corridors, good timber and cover. And, you know, they, I mean, it depends where you're at. Sometimes deer will just stay out in the field all day, but for the most part, a lot of the, the deer are going to kind of move off into that other, like better habitat once they're off the food source. So we're trying to like do that interception where we're finding them and finding, okay, here's their good, here's a good travel routes and good like draws and creeks and other things that lead down toward this. Where are they kind of like going to after that? And we actually, I mean, we, we got a buck last night doing that same thing. Um, we were still, you know, half a mile from the, the private boundary, but it was because that's where the good bedding was. And the good place that we, you know, like was real conducive to the way that we were hunting. Um, it was a little open where we can kind of glass into a few pockets in there. Um, so because of that, you know, we found a little bit of success that way. Um, just kind of finding those, like, it's a good way to find the concentrations, right? Um, it's, it's, it's a good magnet. It's, you know, it's not just because you can't hunt the private doesn't mean that you can't utilize what that private has to offer for where you can hunt. Um, and it's just a good way to kind of concentrate like your efforts because, you look at the map and you go, wow, there's a lot of country out here. It's flat. You can't probably see a lot of it at once. It's very timbered. How do I narrow it down to like out here where these are going to be? But that private agriculture is kind of narrowing it down for you because the deer around there are definitely going to utilize that, if that makes sense. And then once some of that stuff gets harvested, um, you know, they, they're going to start dispersing. But it's a good way to scout and figure out, all right, here's some places that I can concentrate on uh, and kind of just like narrow down my search. Right on, right on. That's uh, that's some great stuff, Remy. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, best of luck to you. Have a good one out there. Thanks. Catch you later. All right, we're going to go to our next caller here. Welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Hi, Remy. Uh, so second second time caller. Um, I, we talked earlier uh, last time I was on. My buddy had a, a knee injury that he was recovering from, and I asked you about some PT stuff for him, but then also joked around about uh, beating him up the hill if we got chased by a grizzly bear up in northern Idaho. And um, actually had a grizz encounter while we were out there. It kind of bluff charges at 30 yards, and he beat me up the hill, actually. So <laughs> it was a good time. Um, ended up being all, all cool and everything. Anyway, my question today was about, um, and regardless of the other guys earlier on the call, uh, they're all talking about being close to private boundary. We were about 20 miles deep in national forest in Northern Idaho, uh, drove in about, uh, 13 miles and then packed in another seven, uh, had an area e-scouted. Everything was good. Uh, North facing slope, edge of a burn, uh, right on a plateau, kind of deep, uh, dark timber in the, in the bottom of the valley up top. High was a burn with like different pockets of, of, uh, of unburned timber that we were expecting as bedding area one small creek in the whole drainage that had water and a couple couple wallows got in found some signs didn't find any elk no bugles as we were hiking in on the main trail um opening morning hiked up to our spot saw some headlamps in the saddle above us about 500 yards we're like ah crap there's other dudes in here um and we hadn't seen anybody coming in there was a few trucks at the trailhead but we didn't run into anybody or didn't find anybody when we were scouting around in like this like about i don't know 700 acre parcel that we were able to scout on our on our first day of scouting on sunday opening day was monday uh the 10th in, in idaho 
So we uh, opening morning rolls around and we had two bulls rip off bugles almost immediately at shooting light. Uh, one was like 300 yards at our same level to our right. Uh, we were sitting kind of on this ridge overlooking this really thick timber um, about, I don't know, a couple hundred feet below us. And another bull ripped off down the ridge and he bugled as a response to the first bull's bugle. So I then bugled to him. He responded immediately, which was also my first time ever having an elk bugle back at me, which is the coolest freaking thing in the world. Um, That's awesome. And uh, we bombed down. I tried to get on the same level as him, so our wind wasn't going down the ridge to him. So we went about 150 yards. I bugled again. He responded, um, dropped down into the thicker timber to then be out of sight and with our wind, with our wind not hitting him. Beat brush, cowed called through there tried to pop up at the same level out of the timber bugled again cow called a little bit no response and then we heard cow calls coming from behind us in the timber the two guys that were that had the headlamps in the saddle had dropped down behind us and were kind of also moving in on this bull which was like not ideal but i was like all right we're in between them and the bull i think we'll be okay got down to the end of the ridge kind of where i thought the bull was at uh cow call beat some brush and then i did kind of a calling sequence because he was responding to our to the bugles so i bugled a couple times no response heard kind of a weak bugle a few minutes after that along with those two other dudes cow calling and then all of a sudden we heard bang bang real quick and these two guys got him like 80 yards behind us and it ended up being a, a five by five like a nice five by five so was kind of bummed out but like in that kind of circumstance uh what was it would there be anything that you would maybe do different like i was thinking maybe shouldn't have come out of the of the dark timber but it was like super dense in there couldn't see more than five or ten yards in front of you the which is where they shot him which is like the craziest thing so like is there anything you would have done differently you know i mean you kind of can just do what you think is right in the moment Uh, i mean a lot of the time in some of those areas like uh, you know this year when i was hunting uh a lot almost all the bulls we got on whether I was hunting or guiding, were in the thick stuff. Um, because they, they tend to come in a little bit tighter in that stuff, uh, and they're, they're kind of used to it. Um, it's just a, it's a matter of timing too, right? Like first thing in the morning, they might they were probably out in that open country. And if they're out in it, it's really good, and you can, um, you know, you can get your shots. And I try to like, I, tr- I try to, that's what you hope for. Um, but sometimes it doesn't work out like that. Like you just kind of have to keep, going after that bugle you know it, it sounds like though i mean you didn't really know where they were at at the time like you did they walk up below you kind of in between you and the hunters is what i'm kind of gathering is like they were probably where you were but by the time you got there they'd moved up and out of the way so the 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 hunters or the elk the elk so where we started we were kind of on this the ridge looking into the into the thicker timber to our, in front of us to our right was the ridge that we were that the bull was on to our kind of to our right and then behind us was the other bull that we eventually tried to go after and the hunters were to our left up in the saddle about four or five hundred yards away like we, and we were set up and like looked over and saw their headlamps like at like before first light we're like ah crap but then when the bugles rip started ripping off they were to our right and we were right in, in between the hunters and the elk and then when we went down into the thick stuff to try to get on the same level. That's when I think the bull came up to where I had bugled like my second time looking for us, but we were, I think, and then he then came in behind us and those other hunters were behind us and they got the shots off. 
So yeah, you know, I mean, I mean it, the- if I was hunting, if I was hunting in that scenario, uh, you know, with another guy, I probably would have just said like, there's two of you hunting generally yeah. what, like if it was me and my buddy or whatever, I'd be like, okay, I'm calling from here. You go after that bugling bull quiet. Like you just charge in there and maybe that's what they were doing. Um, because that, that would be the play that I would have made. I would have said, I'm going to call from here. Right. Because there's a couple things that can happen. One, I mean, it's kind of scary when it's rifle season and bugling, but you might draw that other hunter to you and not to that other bull, um, or to you first. And then you guys can say like, dude, look, here, here's what's going on. My buddy's getting after that one there. Um, you know, and I would keep that bull busy and bugling because with the rifle, it just gives you that extra opportunity to be super aggressive. Uh, and then the guy that's, that's moving in, um, he can, he can kind of just hard charge until he, he spots the bull and gets a shot. Now, the other good thing about that is sometimes when you're the caller, the bull sneaks past the guy that's moving in and you get the shot. So it, it's kind of like flip the coin, who's going in, who's bugling, and then, you know, be set up in that scenario. And I do that with a rifle, with a bow, like, um, that's a, that tactic works really well because the elk isn't like paying attention to the person moving in and you kind of can pinpoint where they're bugling from. Plus it makes it a little bit faster because they're, they're more apt to respond to you like quicker when they're further away. Mm-hmm. I was worried because he was almost directly below where we were at. So I didn't want to continue sitting where we were because our wind was going right to him. So right. the, uh, that, that was the, the whole reason for us both moving, but um, the, yeah, I, I, he totally, I, I totally think he came up past where we had set up and initially set the first couple sets of bugles. So yeah. it was dang still a experience, um, ended up having a couple other encounters later that week. We, we packed in for about, we had enough food and everything for five days. I had a 10 day hunt. Um, and my buddy had to then go to work. So we then went in and had a couple other encounters, but we just never actually saw them cause it's just so thick, nasty in Northern Idaho. We maybe got within 20 yards of one and jumped in the creek bottom down in the bottom of the nastiness and older show tell hole as Renella used to say. Um, and then a, uh, the other, the others we had kind of just like still hunting with wind in our face through that, through the timber. Um, and just never got, never was able to close the distance. So it was, it was Dang. a great time. And thanks for all your tips that you, uh, you gave us, but the, our little grizzly encounter was kind of the highlight of our little backcountry deal. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that was awesome. We, we had a, a, a really nice bull moose that we, that we jumped up to, which was pretty cool. So. Oh, very cool. Um, well, Hey, it sounds yeah. like, uh, you're on the right track and yeah, hopefully, uh, it works out for you next year. Thanks for keeping me updated and, uh, good luck. Yeah, dude. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate what you do. Yep. Have a good one. Thanks for calling. You too. Bye. All right. Let's move on to our next caller here. Hey, welcome to the live wild podcast. Hello. Hey, you got a question? Yeah, so um, I have a mule deer hunt coming up next month in southern Idaho, uh, southwest Idaho. And I was just wondering, like, what terrain features is good to focus on or basically best way to find a good buck during the rut? Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about, I, I don't know, I, you, I wouldn't, don't say where exactly you're hunting, but the nice thing about southern Idaho is it's extremely glassable country. And what I would do is I would really focus on those vantages. Deer are going to be moving. Um, and so, you know, you can be on one really good glassing point. Um, I, I would pick my spots based on where I have kind of the best view, like a, a good commanding view with good lighting. Um, and, and, you know, find those glassing points. Then, 
You know, essentially the game is finding does and you're going to find the bucks. Uh, the more country you can cover with your eyes, the better it's going to be. Now, obviously, if you can kind of find country where other people maybe aren't looking into, so maybe you got to hike somewhere to advantage to kind of look over that country, that's going to be your best bet. Um, you know, I, that, that time of year, you, you're really focusing on what are the does doing. And the does and the bucks are kind of doing different things. Does are being does, and they're going to be out in the more open. Uh, they're going to be in the, you know, better feed sources. If it's real snowy, they're going to be in those more south-facing slopes, and they're going to start congregating there, and that's where the, the bucks are going to show up. So I target those more open areas, those places that are a little bit more mild when the weather hits, um, the south faces, those areas where it's, like, got good habitat that's open. Um, it's just, like, that's where they're going to start congregating. And then you can kind of find those glassing vantages based on that, and you're going to start turning up bucks. Um, it's really good because once that rut starts hitting, those deer that are in those high pockets, those deer that are other places, they're going to be moving and they're going to be looking for those does, and that's going to be your best bet to to finding a good deer. Okay, so just find those glassing points somewhere with lots of view and go from there? Yeah, I mean, I I find those glassing advantages where it's like, hey, you're getting good, you're looking into good southern exposure. You know, sometimes I find lower glassing points and like where I can really cover the face of the mountain. Um, you know, anywhere where I can cover a lot of country at once, especially during the rut, because you can stay put and the deer are going to be moving. Other times of year, you have to move more because the deer aren't moving. Um, so, you know, you can, you can kind of find a few good vantages and then really start like picking apart the country based on that. You know, expecting to say like, okay, even if I find a pocket of does with no buck, continue to watch them. I call it like look, leaving live bait know where you're finding does and then continue to check back in those general areas because bucks are going to start moving in um, as that rut kind of progresses. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, real quick before you go, you were a random winner for the Stone Glacier Gators. So uh, what, what was your name again? Uh, Casey. Yeah, Casey. Well, congratulations, Casey. Uh, I'll be sending some Stone Glacier Gators your way. If you would, uh, just after you hang up here, Send me a direct message on Instagram. If you, do you have Instagram? I do. Okay, cool. If you don't mind, send me a direct message on there, and we will get those sent out to you today. Hopefully, you can awesome. take Thank advantage so of much. them on your Idaho hunt. Yep. Congratulations. I hope so. Yeah. All right. Best of luck. Yeah, Let me know have how a it good goes. day. You too. Um, bye. All right. Will do. Bye. All right. We still got one prize to give away. We got a pair of pack boots. Um, that'll go out to another color. I got like a little random thing going on here. So, uh, when that pops up, an awesome pair of pack boots for late season. All right. We're going to jump into our next call here and then we'll take a couple more before we head on out and sign off. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild podcast. Hello. Who am I talking to? Uh, this is Matt. I'm in hey, Matt. Uh, Colorado. Oh, right on. I've, uh, I've got a third season mule deer tag. Um, yep. I'm kind of front range, Colorado, Northern, um, but I've got access to about 600 acres of private. Um, yep. and I've hunted it a couple of years before, but the big bucks in the area always end up on the ranch right next to where I can hunt, um, with about 40 or 50 does and there'll be two or three, like 180 to 200 inch mule deer on it. Um, so I, was, I know in one of your old podcasts, you kind of talked about rattling in mule deer and kind of grunting at them. 
So I was curious kind of how far out you would try doing that. Um, uh, they usually hold up about 500 yards kind of from the boundary that I can hunt. Yeah, you know, I mean, there, you know, I would try it. I mean, I've called deer that far away. Um, you know, it's a, it's kind of like a long process because what happens is those deer, they've got does and they're kind of like, generally it creates like a buck magnet or whatever, where the, the more activity that happens over there, uh, kind of keeps them locked in, but not every buck's going to win every fight. Not every buck stays on those does, you know, they do start to cruise. <clears throat> so what I would do is I'd set up where I could see, and I'd make those sounds. The trouble is going to be like, what happens is mule deer are very visual as well. So if they can hear something, um, then they're going to, you know, try, try to see it. Uh, there's an option, you know, I don't know, uh, there what, what you can do, but, um, sometimes I've used like decoys in the past. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I, I don't like using those, those silhouette decoys, um, from like on places where people are hunting, <laughs> you know, so private land's fine. Um, but I yep. also don't like using them when they're close. Um, but, you know, something where it's like, hey, if they're, it's a real open country and they need to see something, uh, that can work. Um, but yeah, I, I generally would okay. start out loud, you know, use, use big meal deer antlers, some kind of, I, I actually use this like rattling block thing that works pretty good. Uh, gosh, shoot, I, ha- I had it, I was using it last night. I don't remember who makes it. Um, but it, it works pretty well because it, it can send that sound out. And then I just throw out those different calls and just kind of keep doing that while I'm glassing for other stuff because you just don't know uh, what it might draw in. I've actually found, though, that sometimes that calling, like in that open country, I, I'm assuming it's fairly open uh, there, but um, in that kind of open country, because they, they key into those sounds a little bit more. Um, one thing, too, if you got like a lot of snow, uh, maybe creating trails like in the snow from where you want them to come over to where you're at, because what deer are doing is like, they're, they're traveling these routes and they're jumping on these trails of other deer. We've done that before where we need them to kind of come out of the timber into the open. So we'll go into that timber. We'll like create our own trails through the snow by walking, um, and then back off and watch those trails. It's like a little trick that when they hit that trail, they start to cruise it and they, if they start hearing sounds and other things and they think, Oh, this is where all the deer are going. I want to take this uh, to go there. If they think if they've got to like break trail to get there, um, it, it makes it like not for them. They're like, no, this is not worth it going over. There's all these other deer here. I'm going to stay in these tracks. Um, but once you start to get a few deer hitting your trail that you've made, uh, it's a good way to kind of draw deer out into the open or to where you kind of want to direct them. Um, that's just if you get that real good late snow, which sometimes you do on those late season hunts. Okay. Yeah, I'm not, I don't know if I'll really have the snow, but with the decoy, uh, so it's kind of, it's foothill country, so small, three, couple hundred foot tall hills and like little mini canyons running through them. Yeah. Um, would you say set the decoy, like like if I got like a the silhouette decoy, would you say put it up on like one of the ridges and then rattle down below it? Because they can yeah. see the ridges from, like, the big field. Um, so, obviously, if I'm on that, they might see me sitting there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely put it where, you know, it's funny because, like, they, I, I've used those decoys before, and it's, like, they, it's got to be somewhere where they can see it. And the best is if it's silhouetted on the skyline because it, it's actually harder for them to identify what, what it is. So, it makes it look like, oh, okay, I can see it from everywhere. It looks pretty realistic, and it, it's harder for them to tell whether it's real or not. 
Um, and then having that sound inclusion where they go, oh, okay, there's deer there. This is where I need to go. But it's definitely worth a shot, you know, especially if that's your primary place that you're going to hunt. And, you know, now depending on why they're on that other private, if it's like, hey, they're, they're sitting in the middle of a, a field um, and they just do not leave this field, that makes it even a little bit tougher, like calling them out of the ag and stuff. But it's definitely possible. I mean, I've, we've done it a lot of times. So um, it's definitely worth a try. Worth a try. Well, perfect. Give that a go. Yeah, awesome. Well, good luck to you. Thank you. Yep. Have a good one. All right. We're going to drop down the list here and uh, talk to another caller. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. Hey, how's it going? This is Steve yeah. in Wyoming. Hey, Steve. How's it going? Oh, it's going pretty good. Uh, I drew a cow-calf tag for the late season here, and uh, most of my experience, I'm an adult-onset hunter, so most of my experience has been with, you know, archery, trying to get a bull, so it kind of changes a little bit. We've been getting some snow, and the temperatures have been dropping, so I'm kind of just calling to see if you have any tips on a late-season cow. You know, it's a mountainous area, national forest, but there's a lot of private land around it. So I kind of got to find pockets that I can go in and maybe see if I can pull them to me. Or do you think a call would still work for a cow elk this late or? No, I mean, definitely a calls aren't going to work for cow elk. The only time a call is going to work uh, that time of year, which and it works really well. If you find this, if you find like a lone calf, um, or like a, 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 a cow that's like, seems like she's looking for a herd. Uh, you can throw a cow call, cow call, and you just kind of just keep going. Meow, meow, meow. I mean, I've yeah. called an elk from a mile away, but it's got, it's generally got to be a calf that no longer has uh, a herd with her and yeah. they come running. Um, outside of that, it's yeah, very no, difficult I did that to this use year. calls. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, pretty I cool. Called, they come I called in, in a cow. They're running in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a but lot now of fun. I'm like, well, I, I know that's probably not going to work. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, I focus on those, those South slopes. Um, the colder the day, the better. Like if you had to choose, I would want those like super, super cold days. I don't know. How late that season go till? Well, it goes all the way till the end of December, but oh, yeah. I got a chance next weekend. So I'm going to try to bust out there, but it's been around the low forties, fifties. So it's been kind of hanging around there. So yeah. still fairly warm for elk. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the thing. If you got, if you're, if you're looking at the season, it's a long season and you're like, Hey, maybe I could, I could grab a day. And it's like, um, if you get those times where it snows, the, the temperature, then it like clears up the temperature plummets. Those elk, those especially the cows, are going to be stunning themselves, and it makes it a lot easier. So when you go in there, pay attention to those places. Like, here's a here's a place that the elk are going to be able to sun themselves on public where I can hunt, and you're gonna find elk there um, in that like late season. That that's the tactic that we use for like late season cow hunts all the time, and we do really well with it. Um, you know, we just kind of pin like pick the day. You know, Some, and obviously it doesn't always line up like that. Like you got to go when you can go. Um, but you know, you, when you kind of have like the right conditions and you're like, I can, I can go tomorrow, you're going to just increase your chance because yeah. it's set up for it better, you know? Yeah, definitely. I just didn't really know much about how to go about with 
cows, you know, should I just stick yeah. maybe to in the morning spot and stock glassing mostly. I only got two days for yeah. right now, but I'd really like yeah. to get it over before the real snow hits. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I would definitely, it's, it's going to be that glassing is a glassing game. So, I mean, you're going to find the most success doing that. Um, and so, yeah, those long vantages and just finding those pockets where you can pick out the cows and move in and, and get one. So best of luck to you. Hopefully it, it pans out and get some good meat in the freezer. All right. Awesome. I one. appreciate you, man. Thank you for all that yeah. you do. You too. Thank you. Have Bye. a good one. Bye. You too. Bye. All right. We're going to take another call here. Hey, welcome to Live Wild Podcast. How's it going? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? Yeah, good. Good. Uh, Justin here. I'm from uh, Calgary, Alberta. Um, big fan, long time. And uh, wouldn't you know it, like uh, two of the guys that have just called have called with the exact same scenarios that I was calling about. Um, I, too, have a late season cow elk up uh, in central Alberta till January 20th. Um, so that's quite late. I was also wondering about uh, calling and, and what kind of strategy to take. Um, so I think I've got a good idea of what to do there. Um, I guess uh, if I'm grasping at a couple straws to ask you, because um, we do do a lot of hunting, my son and I, so uh, we do have te- a 10-acre parcel, which doesn't seem like much, and it's not, um, but it's part of like an 80-acre kind of woodland up uh, central Alberta. Yeah. Um, so we're looking for maybe strategies to get the the whitetail um, to come, you know, make our place the cool place to hang. Uh, <laughs> um, we got a couple tree stands up this year. I planted some clover in a small um, kind of private section in that ten acres. Um, so we've been trying our luck archery hunting this year, but not a lot have come around and within range. So. Um, now we're heading into the rut. Any tactics you can think of? Yeah, I mean, boy, maybe. Uh, you know, I mean, for us, like we we don't hunt a lot of that kind of country. But what we do do is we do a lot of calling because we're hunting in big country. And I feel like I mean, I, I've guided on places um, kind of similar, like little little pockets where you know they, they've got does and other things. And, and I like to call animals. I just like that's that's a way that I enjoy the hunt. I feel like I'm doing something as well. Um, rattling, grunting, uh, like the, the guys talked about mule deer, you know, I, I think in, when I first started rattling for mule deer, I'd never heard of anyone ever calling a mule deer in. Like I'd actually heard people say like, you can't call mule deer in. Um, and so I'd never used that tactic growing up. And I just decided I really like try it <laughs> and it started working out for us. Um, you know, and the same thing with whitetails, most, uh, most, uh, like bucks that we kill, uh, we've, we've called in because it's, there's a lot of country and you're trying to draw a deer to where we're at. Is there any little thing that we can do to kind of enhance that, um, helps. And that's one, that's just the tactic that I like to use. Um, you know, and, and I think it, it, can, it can work in a lot of places. I know there's a lot of like white tail guys that just kind of depend on the food and, and don't really do a lot of the calling. Um, you know, for us, we can't really depend on, on that. So we just re rely on the calling because it just, makes us feel like we're doing something. Um, so I definitely think that that would be something worth trying. You know, it, it, I don't, I'm not sure if you do do a lot of calling or not, but, uh, you know, it's definitely something worth, uh, it's definitely worth giving it a shot. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. We, uh, we don't do a lot. Like I've got a grunt, so I'll 
grunt. If I'm moving around, I'll I'll kind of grunt to kind of hide, uh, kind of tactic to hide what I'm actually doing. You know, thinking there's yep. something else than than just a human messing around. Um, uh, okay, no, we'll do more calling. I think I'll get some of those rattles. And what do you think about um, scent control? I know that you've probably talked a lot on um, gear, and I've heard a lot. You you talk a lot about gear, but I've never really heard much about uh, your opinion on scent control. Like this is the first year I've started washing my stuff in detergents and and spraying down and actually keeping it in its in its own Tupperware bin and and or Rubbermaid I should say. But um, do you do that? Do you keep your stuff completely separate and and spray down before you go out or? Uh, no, I don't. But I also don't do a lot of like stand hunting. Um, I think if maybe I did, I mean, it, it, there's guys that do it and it works, you know, for us, like the kind of hunting that we do, we have, we have, you know, we're very fortunate. We hunt like really large swaths of national forest and like our scent control is getting the wind right. Um, and unfortunately the scent control stuff doesn't work when you're hiking around and moving around like we do, because you know, you start to sweat and it just, it just becomes invalid. The best scent control is like playing the wind. Um, and, and I understand when you're, you're sitting, it doesn't, uh, doesn't work like that when I'm, um, like, you know, I've done, we've done a few, like, you know, sitting blinds for elk, sitting blinds for antelope, uh, sitting blinds for bear. I personally don't do a lot of the scent control stuff and I've still had success, but I'm not, there's going to be guys who are just freaking out right now. Like, it, it, you know, um, so I think that that's just because it's not, it's not the way that I do things. It doesn't mean that that's the right, like the way I'm telling you, like if you sit and you've got a, a small tract of land, do whatever you can that makes you feel confident in it. Right. Like it, it has to work um, and give you that little bit of an edge. Uh, for me, I, I haven't really messed with it. And I, I generally, you know, I, I try to, it's like play the wind because even with all the scent control in the world, if you're sitting in the wrong spot for the wind, you're going to get busted most of the time. Um, now when it swirls and you got other things, there is stuff that you can do that helps out. Um, I generally not so like to smell terrible. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's like worth, it's worth doing if you're doing it. I mean, you might as well. I mean, you can't hurt, right? Well, that's what I was thinking because we've been successful every other year. It's not like I'm changing things up to become successful. It's just changing things up because what can it hurt? But, uh, right. Exactly. Yeah. No, yep. You're right. right yeah. On. Cool. Right yeah, on. Well, thanks, thanks for, the, for call. the call. Yeah, appreciate yeah, it. Have a good you. one. And good luck this season. All right, you too. Man. All right. We're going to jump to another caller here. Hey, welcome to the Live Wild Podcast. Hey, Remy. This is Mick down in southwest Montana. How's it going? Yeah, pretty good. How's it going, Nick? Good. Hey, you know, funny story. I actually uh, met you once. You had a flat tire out antelope hunting and you were hitchhiking down the highway and uh you hooked a ride and uh we had lunch together one time so <laughs> yeah uh, that's just awesome. wanted to remind you of that painful experience you had yeah yeah and actually uh i, I should have said this before you started talking because my thing went off and you are the winner of the schnee's pack boots so i didn't want people to think i was playing favorites but <laughs> i didn't tell you ahead of time congratulations on that um before we go any further yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, what's your question? Yeah, that's man? awesome. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And so my question is, uh, and I know you're kind of going through it right now yourself. That's why I thought it would be a great question, was um, getting your wife involved in hunting. I hope she uh, is listening to this podcast. 
so you can't uh, be telling many lies, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> um, you know how 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 do you go about you know trying to get your you know spouse or new hunters involved? I know obviously you being a guide, you've had a lot of new hunters and stuff. But how do you not burn them out right away? Or what are your do you have any tips on doing that? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, so I, you know, my wife is is now like she she loves the hunt. It's one of our favorite things to do together. Um, this past week, actually guiding, I was getting a husband and a wife, and they brought their six year old daughter. And then the other group that was in our camp was a husband and wife, and this was uh, his wife's first hunt. Um, so we we do have a lot of experience, like helping people that uh, are are kind of new into it get into it. And I say the first thing, and this is. You know, you, you got to like, uh, think of this and, you know, maybe you think about like hunts where, you know, people have been getting into it or whatever, but the way that I approached it was, um, I really, and it might sound weird or whatever, but like you, you can't make the hunt about you, right? If you're getting a new hunter in, uh, it's gotta be 100% about them. And I think that people kind of forget about that, whether it's a kid, whether it's your wife, whether it's a friend. Um, you know, we all love to go out and especially those of us that have been hunting a long time and like, we love to be successful. We know how to be successful. Like we, we know that things to do, but for a new hunter, everything is new. And, you know, sometimes you, you just kind of got to, um, in many ways, like ease them into it and make it like about them and make it a fun experience, no matter what, um, I, you know, sometimes like, you, you know, as much as you want to, and I'm not saying like every person is different. Right. So, you know, my wife really enjoyed the, like, uh, the hard aspect of the hunt. And so we kind of catered toward that. So we, her first hunt, we chose like, even though we were only hunting small game, it was like, we went into areas where we had to do a lot of hiking. We, you know, I don't think she would have wanted to find success on the road. She wanted to kind of like have that hunt and have that little bit of a struggle and just knowing her and knowing what she liked, I catered the hunt toward that. So I was like, we're going to go hunting small game, but, um, you know, we're, we're going to go and we're going to hunt this little mountain spot. And then we went trucker hunting, which we could have gone, um, hunting, you know, grouse off the road or pheasants or quail, but we decided to go trucker hunting. And, you know, she really was like, okay, I really like this aspect of it. I really like this, this pursuit of it. And it made her really want success even more. And then that, you know, she found her first success and it was like, whoa, this is really cool. Now I want to try this on big game. Um, you know, so I think that's the one thing to kind of think about is, like when you're getting a new hunter into it, uh, especially when it comes to kids as well, uh, you don't want to burn them out on it. Us hardcore hunters, we know all the little nuances and the passions and we've ha- found success and we know what that struggle means and, and why it's so fun to be successful. But, you know, on, on this last hunt, the um, the daughter of the guy that I was hunting with, she was like a trooper. She was in it. She just, she was all about it. Um, we went places most adults didn't want to go, but we also took time to make hot chocolate, cook s'mores, you know, um, look at fun things and, and, you know, make silly tree faces in the snow and do all the stuff that's also fun, um, to kind of keep them engaged in what's going on, not just, uh, you know, me as the guide or someone as the dad, like, oh, we got to go kill a bull and we got to do it this way. Um, kind of thinking about the person you're hunting with and, and making about them as well, or primarily about them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I, I'll, uh, have to give it a try and try to drag her out of the house this weekend and see if I can, uh, you know, find a little bit of success, whether it's, uh, actually filling the tag or not, just hopefully finding something that she's going to enjoy and 
like to do yeah. for, forever, I guess, together. So that's awesome. And I think the you know the big step too is just you know inviting people. I know uh, you know when I talk to my wife, she she says like if her dad would have taken her hunting, she would have gone. Like she was always kind of like fairly interested in it, but just having that opportunity to go out and do it with someone uh, can be the difference as well. So that's just something to think about for people who are like, man, I really like to get my whoever into hunting. Um, you know, just, just offering that invite and being like, all right, let's, let's go. Let's have a good time. And it, it can be a really fun experience. Um, so yeah, best of luck to you guys. Uh, if you don't mind, shoot me a message um, and uh, we'll get you those, those boots sent your way. That sounds great. Thanks, Remy. Really appreciate everything you do. Yep. Great to talk to you, and thanks for uh, saving me off the side of the road, because that was going to be a real long walk, man. <laughs> I appreciate that, right? Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> All right. Have a good one. Yep. Catch you later. All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody that called in to the Live Wild Live. I really appreciate the calls and and all the questions. You know, thank you guys so much. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention too, we did, I, I talked about it a couple podcasts ago, but I had a stone glacier giveaway, uh, like a full kit. We've got our winner, Chris Nova. Congratulations. Uh, he's been contacted now. And I'm um, just so if you're like, I wonder what happened with that giveaway. Uh, the winners got their stuff. Uh, thank stone glacier so much for, you know, always supporting this podcast as well as like giving stuff away to you guys there. It's an incredible company based out of Montana. Um, as always, you can use code live wild with them and get free shipping on anything. And then also thanks so much to Schnee's also out of Montana, um, for the, the boots today. I know that that was, uh, that's awesome. Really good for late season. So one thing I really like about those boots is they've got the liner in them. They're like waterproof. They've got the rubber bottoms, uh, full leather. You can get different sizes in them. That's my go-to when it's like, it's really, really cold going through a lot of snow, um, I've even used them like backcountry hunting real late season because you can take those boot liners out into your sleeping bag with you and then you just leave the shells out so your boots don't freeze. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good way to do it. So thank you guys so much. Thanks everyone for tuning in, calling in. If I didn't get to your call, hopefully next time we can, we can chat on next week. Live wild. God, that was a smooth sign off. That wasn't awkward at all.